0: Episode 47, Nuts and Bolts of Effective Classroom Management. Educators, is your passion tank running on empty? Look no further. Gretchen of Always a Lesson has a double dose of just what you need. Come fill yourself up with an empowering educators podcast to start your day feeling... Empowered. Hi, Elite Educators. This is Gretchen from Always a Lesson. And whether you're teaching a lesson or learning one yourself, this podcast is for you. I'm here to empower you to reach your potential. And I refer to you as Elite because honestly, only someone that is Elite would take time to invest in themselves by listening to a podcast like this to help hone their craft. I am still enjoying going through all the reviews you're leaving on iTunes. It's definitely encouraging me to continue putting out great content, but also really getting feedback to what you like and any tweaks that you wish for me to change. Today's shout out for a rating and review goes to Dance Capades, which their review was entitled, A Well Organized Resource. So they say, as a former consultant in education, I like how this podcast provides help on a variety of fronts to our dedicated and busy educators. Oh my gosh, isn't that true? (laughs) Busy is an understatement. They continue, every teacher spends time in different challenges or experiences at different times, depending on the dynamics of the classroom situations they're confronted with, and this show will meet you where you are. Oh, that's good. I want to talk about that. Great host and direct access to the content that helps. No fluff or time wasting here. Nice work. Thank you so much, Dance Capades. That was a thorough review. Very appreciative of that. I like how you mentioned that we're all facing issues at different times and that you can tune into the show and find one that hits your current need. And so it really is meeting you where you are. And that's why I love that all of the past episodes get archived because you can go back and find something whether it's the time of the year that fits better for you or it's a certain challenge that you're focusing on and you can just pick up that episode and it really speaks to you and you feel like you're armed and ready to take on the challenge for it that week. I also love how you were saying no fluff or time wasting because that is something I'm kind of known for, that I just get right to the point. And that's always the feedback I have for myself is to take time to build relationships more or just talk about the weather or whatever, you know, get to know people. Um, And so I'm glad that someone says, I actually appreciate that you just get right down to business. And I even find myself sometimes when I'm listening to podcasts, fast forwarding through some of the intros or just the catching you up on what's happening because I really just want to get to the meat and potatoes. Um, So I'm glad to hear that you appreciate that. I, although I know that other people do prefer to hear a little bit more of that relationship building. So I'll try to balance that as I continue moving. Today, I want to help you reignite your passion and your potential by talking about the nuts and the bolts of classroom management, especially one that's going to be really effective for you. This podcast I think of is really great for newer teachers, especially if you're a veteran that's helping or mentoring a newer teacher. But it obviously is always something in here for everyone. So hang on. This is one empowering ride. So when I was a new teacher, classroom management was definitely my thing. But I really never knew why I was good at it. I couldn't even describe things I did that were effective. It was just something that my principals and teammates would tell me, oh, you have great classroom management. And I didn't even dig deeper to say, what do you mean by that? I just... Took it as a compliment and kept moving and I felt like I had good control over my class and I just had other areas that I was working on it. But when I really try and think about it, like what was it that made my classroom management so effective? I knew I was organized, so I thought that was definitely part of the equation. I had a thorough plan. I wouldn't say I was very thorough on paper my first few years, but In my brain, I was very sequential and thorough in terms of what materials do I need, which student is going to start, or let me write in students' names for who I'm going to call on. And I just really was thorough in how I approached the design of my lesson. So I knew that that was a factor. And then just my commanding presence and my demeanor, I knew being a leader, that just naturally came out. So I knew those three things had had to play a part or a role, but I wasn't really sure how and if there was more to it than that. And honestly, because no one ever asked me, I never had to come up with an explanation. But it wasn't until I started coaching that I really had to break down classroom management into pieces. And that's when I realized how huge of a skill managing a group of kids is, especially Even if you have one more child than you've had before, I know that sounds crazy, is, oh, I went from 20 to 21. You know, what a difference that is. But it really is. It totally throws everything off, especially when you have odd numbers. That drives me crazy, (laughs) at least for planning groups and things. But it is. It's another person that you have to account for and, and think through. And it's not impossible at all. It just requires you to take an extra second when you're designing your lessons. And so I think of classroom management as like this umbrella skill, and then underneath it are numerous mini skills. And I really could talk about classroom management forever, but I wanted to really hone in on just a few aspects that I think could really catapult your management in the right direction before we get too nitty gritty. But the reason I call them nuts and bolts is because I think they really are foundational things that really control... If something's going to happen or something's not going to happen, and a lot of the way I manage a class is preventive, and I think that that is what my message will be to you today is the more that you create structure in your class, the more that you can avoid opportunities for disruptions or undesirable behaviors. So one of my favorite books is Teach Like a Champion. It's by Doug Lemov. They're actually in their second version. It's called Teach Like a Champion 2.0. That really helped me put a name to the techniques I was using because the book really is like a page to maybe three or four, maybe even five pages if it's a really detailed technique. So you can hop around the book as you will. You know, oh, I got that one. I know that one. Or, ooh, what's this? This sounds great. And it's just a quick read, and it's, here's what this looks like, actual kids and teachers using it. Hey, click on this link and watch the video and see it live. I mean, it's just so helpful, but it really helped me start naming the things I was doing. So now when people said, hey, how do you manage a class? I'm like, oh, here we go. This is the techniques I use, and this is why I use them. It really helped me fine tune what I was doing already and that way I could be more effective. So it wasn't just, oh yes, I do this, but it was, ooh, I do something similar to this, but this is so much better. I'm going to tweak a few things and, and now I'm good to go. And we started using that book with our new teachers. So we had a mentor program and we designed our professional development once a month for these new teachers using these techniques and the feedback was really strong as to wow, I mean, they're simple, simple techniques. You wouldn't think that changing one little way you say directions or, you know, creating a route to get to one place in the classroom is going to have a huge effect, but it totally does. And they mentioned a lot of these classroom management techniques, saving them time. Um, And that's one thing I'm going to talk about later, but When you really are structured, you save a lot of time in your day, and you end up having more time to teach or work one-on-one with students, and that's what teaching is really all about. So what we're doing is kind of tightening up all the other odds and ends that happen in a lesson or in a classroom and so you can really spend most of your time teaching. Sounds very simple because it is. So upon reflecting like what is classroom management, what would be the foundations, what are the nuts and bolts, it really comes back to planning what you want. And so if you don't know what you want for a lesson, there's no way you can plan for it and certainly no way your kids are going to respond in a way that's what you want. And there's two words here that come to mind when I want you to plan what you want. It's what and how. So I want you to think through what is it I want my kids to do and how do I want them to do that. And how is usually the part that's left out and where most new teachers struggle. Because they say, oh, well, I wanted them to fill out this graphic organizer, And it's like, okay, great. Are they working by themselves? Are they working in pairs? How much time do they have? What materials are they using? Can they look it up in the book? What's the noise volume? All these other pieces that you're thinking, oh, Well, I didn't really think about that. So if you had planned that ahead of time, you would be able to preface some of that when you're giving directions to your kids, and then they're able to be more successful. One, they know what the expectation is so they can rise to the occasion, but you're also taking the guesswork out. Here's what I want you to do, and they're able to then do that. And so you're saving time, saving lots of headaches, and you're thinking to yourself, gosh, is it really this easy? What I realized and what I've mentioned many times on the show is teaching is 90% planning and 10% actually being on stage. I wish it was the other way around. You know, my husband's a lawyer and he says the same thing. I thought it was about being in the courtroom, you know, but he spends much more of his time writing and reading behind the scenes, probably that 90% and 10% actually being in front of someone arguing a case. And so I think what's really important here is that the foundation of a good teacher is how thoroughly that they plan. And I wish I could go back to my younger self and say, hey, you got a lot of good ideas and you're a natural teacher, but you got to put it on paper. And I know you feel like that's a waste of time. And I know there's a million other things you need to do, but it really helps you see areas that you need to tweak or where there's gaps. And there's one part of this that I'm going to share later that makes it very obvious where there are holes in your lesson. So I have five that I feel are really helpful. So let's dive into the first one. Systems and routines. Now that itself could go on forever and ever. But here's just what I want to say about that. Every movement in your classroom needs a system. And that system has to have a purpose. It's not just you trying to be the boss or you trying to be controlling. There's a purpose. There's a reason why you need to have that certain structure and place. And a lot of it, to be honest, comes back to being safe. Because you have so many kids in one small space. But also, a lot of times, it's to be respectful of each other. It's to allow someone to take turns. It's to ensure we're doing something efficiently so we have more time in the lesson, whatever it may be. And if you're struggling to say, why am I asking them to do this in this way? Well, then you don't have a purpose. Really, your purpose has to come first before you say, okay, I want it to look like X, Y, Z. So what I would say for you to do is start at the very beginning of your day and walk through it in your mind, and every time that students move within that lesson or within that date, start jotting it down. So maybe it's they go to the pencil sharpener, they're going to the trash, they're going to the class library, they're heading to the cubbies or lockers, whatever it may be. Every time they're moving somewhere, jot that word or phrase down. And then all those little movements need a process, and you're going to be so overwhelmed looking at this list like, holy cow, my kids are constantly moving around the room. And I think at the end of the year, when you have a lot of processes, you can actually relax and kids can move more freely because they know the boundaries. But until you've set up what you want things to look like, you kind of have to be a drill sergeant in terms of... This is how I rolled it out. This is how we're going to do it. Let's stay consistent because once I let you do it one way, then I can't require everyone else to have to follow the system. And it's like, you know, they say, oh, don't smile till Christmas. Well, the whole point of that is to really just have that structure and that seriousness and the emphasis and urgency on an effective classroom so that over time you can start being more lenient as everyone starts to work together and see, again, the purpose behind what you're doing. So maybe the first month it's kind of intense and it feels just very uncomfortable and very army-like, but then as you guys start to feel each other out and you know we're an area where kids are doing really well and you can back up a bit, then do so. But you can't start lenient and then get harsher. So I know we're kind of towards the end of the year, so maybe this is really going to help you think through next year. But the best part of this, hearing it now, is this is your class who's probably pretty well behaved at this point from everything you've done this year, and they're going to be your guinea pigs. And you could say, hey, I've got to do a better job of this next year, so I'm going to roll out some things towards the end of this year, and you guys are going to help me perfect it. And so you're going to get out all all the bugs before your students come in next year and when it's going to be perfect. So don't let the time of year throw you off here. But so think about these little movements. I used a finger system. So when students needed to go sharpen their pencil or go to the trash or needed to go to the bathroom, they'd hold a finger up, and we decided which finger meant what. That was part of our class meeting. And that really helped me not have to stop a lesson To call on a student for them to tell me they just needed to go sharpen. Now I have to remember where I was in the middle of my sentence. So they can just hold up that finger and then I either nod yes or or shake my head no, meaning it's just not a good time, but wait. And usually I put my finger up like, hold on, you can go in a minute. And then when I'm done speaking or giving directions, then I... Let them know that they can go with just a hand gesture or so. But gestures are fantastic. Keep it very, very simple. I picked the pencil sharpener or the trash in the bathroom because that happened all day. So it may take you a while to really say what are the repetitive behaviors that I don't actually need to speak to students about that they can just ask. And so that definitely was a system that had a purpose to make sure that it wasn't disrupting the learning process, but that students were still able to get their needs met. You know, if they needed to go get a Kleenex, which was right next to the trash, so we used the same symbol for that. I didn't want to hold them up. I don't want them holding their nose, like <laughs> everything dripping down onto their clothing because I'm asking them to wait. So I knew and they knew what the emergencies were. And then it, it also was a repetitive bathroom issue. So if they went more than twice during the class, then that, that was it. So you also have to think through what do these separate systems look like? But for me, using a finger system was really helpful Another system that I used was for the checking out of the library. So I had a certain time of day that students were allowed to go to the library and check out books because otherwise they were back and forth, back and forth all day long to that library and the library was getting to be a mess and kids were hoarding books. and It just became a nightmare for me and it was so much movement. It was way too much happening. I was distracted. Even if I wasn't up there teaching, kids were just working. It was just constant people up and out of their seats And so I had kids sign up for a day. That was your group's day to go shop. And so in the morning, you didn't have morning work because your morning work that day was to go to the library and you had to get one short book, you know, one chapter book. You had to get a historical fiction, whatever it was that we were working on in all our subjects. Because remember, I taught elementary. So I had the, I needed them to think through text for. The entire day, so not just during our English language arts period, but for science and social studies, I needed you to have a good text for that. And so they kind of knew had their checklist of okay, it's time to check out books, and this also has to last me a week until my next day, where I can go and take my book baggie and check out books. And then there was times at the end of the day when there would be a few minutes of downtime where. Kids could choose to go and swap out books if they just really weren't into them because that was another thing. They would start a book, never finish it, go get another book. And I'm like, okay, this generation of like needing new things all the time has got to stop because I'm going to run out of books. But that was another system, you know, having a time of day, you know, mentioning the the finger system. These small things have a purpose to make sure that we are a well-oiled machine. Now, the other thing you want to think about is like bigger movements, whole class movements. So transitions between subjects or to and from specials or lunch. And the thing I'd say here is think about the route that students are taking. And this again goes back to safety. So I would think about my classroom setup. How What's the most efficient way from point A to point B? And then I would walk that before I told kids, here's how I want it to go. I actually walked it. I'm like, oh, this is really tight right here. This person doesn't need to take this route. That doesn't make sense because they're closer over this way and so each group then knew the route that they had to take to line up or to go to this part of the classroom so that we didn't have running because that was a huge thing oh my god let me like catapult over groups of desks or chairs to be the first one to the carpet or whatever it's ridiculous so being able to give them a clear route was very helpful for me, and then, then of course, speaking of the carpet, I had a signed spot, so there's no reason for you to rush because your spot's going to be there. No one could take it, and then you know every week I'd switch it up, so uh, the prime real estate opportunities could be shared. But walking the class, knowing those transitions and those routes were really helpful, especially because I could find those hot spots. And so then I would just create the system and I'd adjust it as I was watching students actually perform it. You know, they've got shorter legs and smaller feet. And so places I thought would be tricky actually weren't that bad for them. And I'd ask them, hey, I know that this would be faster. I just thought it was trickier. What do you think? They're like, let's give it a try. And then if it worked, we kept it. So being open minded with your systems is good, too. So I always had everyone get out the materials on the desk all at the same time, but then I would excuse people by group to line up or take the materials wherever they needed to go. And that turned into eventually they didn't need to be called because group one always started. And the last person that was done with group one, then group two, no, they stood up and so on and so forth. And before you know it, kids were just transitioning without needing any prompting for me. And that really is the goal, but that did take a long time. But when you have a system that's working when you finally get to that stage it's so rewarding all right so let's go to part 2 nuts and bolts we've got teacher and student actions and so i always thought about teacher actions because i felt i ran the show and if you've been listening to this podcast for a while you know it's something that i was working on you know really passing that ownership over to the students And so I would make a T-chart in lesson plans, and every time I wrote something down for me to do, that's the teacher, I had to think about, okay, what are the students doing? So if I wrote down pass out papers, then I had to think, okay, what are the kids doing? And I would always write down sitting and waiting, and I'm like, that's ridiculous. What a waste of that child's time. Um, So then I had to start thinking again, like this routine, what can I do to help this be a a better process. And I wouldn't have known that that was a need if I didn't split up into teacher-student actions. And when you can't account for an action either on yourself or the student, that's where the gap is. And so a lot of times I had to assign myself a small group or a student to check on because I was left during the lesson doing nothing because sometimes students really needed to process or to think and I didn't want to intervene all the time. But I also didn't just need to be standing there and so over time, I kind of learned what my kids needed and, and what were some repetitive actions I could use. But for example, with the passing of the papers, I decided I would just get them started on their reading activity and then I would pass out the paper, which maybe was a graphic organizer. So now instead of kids waiting on me and then me saying, okay, now you may begin, they're starting to read the story. When they get the graphic organizer, they can just start working once they've received it. And then i wanted to be more efficient so i started passing out they would get started and then i'd pass out the papers maybe to the first person in each row and then they'd pass it backwards and then i thought well how can i make this even better because this is really quick right now but again it's dependent on me and that was that ownership i was really working on and so then i had table group captains and they came up to my table when i said you may begin they knew their job was to come up and get whatever supplies were laid out for their group and bring it back. And the planning part here was I had pre-counted my material. So instead of each child or each captain coming up and saying, okay, one, two, three, four, and then going back to their group, that's eating up time. So I already had them counted and then I would have them laying different ways. So if there were four people in a group, group A would be horizontal, group B would be vertical. And then I would just keep stacking papers on top of each other. So they're kind of making an X or a plus pattern. It was easy for them to just come grab the stack, and then they had enough. And if for whatever reason I miscounted, they always brought it back. But for me, that was really a helpful procedure. Everyone was working. Students were then taking ownership over the process, and I was able to dive into whatever instruction I needed to do with my small groups. So thinking of these student actions helps you really see the holes in your plan where students are just sitting idle. And that's really where behavior crops up. That's where they start arguing. That's where they're starting to play with their pencils or do whatever. I mean, they don't want to be bored. So they're going to find something to do. And then that's really distracting to others. But if you really keep your students meaningfully busy when you just have to go fetch something or do something or check in with a student, then that's starting to become this meaningful, purposeful classroom. So the third nut and bolt is timing. So plan everything and then some. So transitions are going to take forever in the beginning. You know, maybe a transition just to the other side of the classroom takes five minutes. (laughs) And then at the end of the year, you've got it down to like a minute and a half or less. But that takes a lot of practice. It takes feedback so kids know what you want from them, how to adjust. But when you time your lessons as you're planning them, it really ensures that you're managing your time. That way, You can get through, number one, what you planned, but then it also allows you enough time for the lesson. And that was at least my problem was that I talked so quickly to get through my lesson because I was paranoid I'd run out of time. And then I'm left with these five minutes at the end, and even though I overplanned, I still have five minutes. Like, what a waste of time. Five minutes doesn't sound like a lot, but it actually can be. And there's nothing more annoying as a coach going in and seeing kids chatting for the last five minutes And the teacher being like, oh my God, the kids love it. Yeah, they love it. But that could have totally been a way for you to find or help them with a misconception or get them on the road to to growing a level or something. I mean, every day we need small actions that may not seem like they add up to a lot, but they really do. After each lesson, so let's say you sat down, you wrote your lesson plan and you timed out. You're like, okay, this will take 15. This will take 10. This will take five. And then you can jot notes at the end of the day. Okay, this do now, even though I said five minutes, it actually took three to four. This exit ticket, oh my God, I need more time, like 10 minutes, or I just need to shorten it because those notes are really helpful when you're designing the next day's lesson plans and you're not going to remember. If you plan your lessons once a week, you're not going to remember. So it's good to just jot down whatever happened, do a quick mind dump before you exit of what you need to tweak, and then you know, okay... I can save time at the do now, but I've got to actually put that towards the exit ticket or I, or I need more time for the independent practice or whatever it might be. And I've talked about it before, but it's like a triangle. So the top of your triangle is your I do. That's where you are in charge of whatever's happening. Ideally, a mini lesson. So 10 to 20 minutes. If you're talking longer than that and kids aren't doing anything, you've got a problem. And if you're a teacher that's like, I have to speak for 30 to 45 minutes, then you've got to break it up and do 10, 15 minutes activity or get them started and then bring it back in and you've got your next 10 to 15 minutes. There's got to be a break there. So that's the top of your triangle. It's only 10 to 20 minutes. It's not very long. The next chunk of that triangle gets a little bit bigger because now you're in the middle of the triangle. So maybe 10 to 15 minutes, maybe 15 to 20 minutes, whatever, a little bit longer is a safe practice. We call it a we do. So we're doing it together. And then the bottom part of your triangle, the biggest part of a triangle, maybe like 30 minutes, is the you do. So students are working by themselves. And so that's what makes the triangle. And if you're planning your lessons, that you're talking a small amount of time, then you're helping students work for a bigger portion of the time. But the majority of your lessons is students working by themselves independently. That doesn't mean you're not supporting them, but it means they're grappling with the content for a great portion of the lesson, then you've nailed it. That's great. But now what you have to do is assign that triangle times because you don't want to go over. And I'm not saying you said 5, 10 minutes for this and you're on minute 11. You've got to stop in the middle of your sentence and move on. No, these are flexible times. But it is really helpful if you're someone that goes over or goes under to say, okay, I've really got to start wrapping up my thoughts. I'm not going to get into this next section, which is much more important because each part of that triangle is so much more important than the last portion. You know, kids need the top triangle. They need to hear your modeling. They need to hear your content. They can't do anything else with the rest of the lesson without that. But once that part's over, then the next most important part is them working with you so you can kind of starting to see where they're getting it, what the misconceptions are, how strong they are, where do you need to push, what do you need to clarify. But then after that, what's even more important is them doing it by themselves. And the best thing I did was I got a timer, and then I found one online so I could just bring it up and project it, which was fantastic. And then I, obviously, you probably figured this out, my kids started to run my timer, basically because I was always in the back with a small group, and I didn't want to run up to the front and hit stop and do whatever. So I always had a timer leader <laughs> that was in charge of everything, but everything should really have a time. And so if kids are transitioning, whether it's getting materials or relocating in the room, it was like two minutes that was up on the timer go. And they knew as soon as the timer went off that they had better it. And a lot of kids started way before the timer and then I could adjust. Okay. They really only need a minute to get there. Every independent practice gets a timer. So I don't time myself for the delivery of a lesson, but I am cognizant of the time. So I'm either the clock is visible to me or I have a watch and I know, okay, I'm only going to give myself 10 to 15 minutes, but the time where the kids see the timer is that independent practice because what I realized is they need to structure their time. And so instead of saying, you have 30 minutes to work on this, I may do 15, and then when the timer goes off, I make an announcement, I share some feedback, I have kids come up and share their progress and model for each other, I give some kind of encouragement for the last 15 minutes, and then they're back at it, and I set the timer again. That really helps break up the chunk, but helps, especially the younger students learn, again, like I said, manage their time. One piece of advice from my mistake is to also make sure you're giving them time checks. So it could be really stressful for them when you're like, okay, time's up, pencil down, we're moving on now. And that's very frustrating because they're in the middle of a thought or they were almost done and no one wants to like have to pick up in the middle of this great idea. So when you say, okay, you've got five minutes left or one minute left or 30 seconds left, they have that warning that they've got to wrap it up or they can jot down notes instead of full sentences, whatever they need to do to just get it on their paper so the next time they pick it up, they're ready to just jump right in again. I think that timer is really helpful for you to just pay attention to your time, be purposeful with the words so you're not just up there being long-winded or nervous and talking on and on and on. You get down to business quickly. You're just getting a ton more out of your kids and out of the lesson than ever before. But, you know, start small. Maybe use the timer for one part of your lesson and you do that for a day or two and then you're ready to add on. Okay, maybe use a timer for two parts of your lesson. Do that for a few more days and keep adding on because you don't want to do this huge overhaul in your classroom management. You want to try these things out, tweak them as you need to, and then once you're kind of getting it, add on. The fourth things is directions. I would write them out ahead of time. I always had PowerPoint slides or Smartboard slides. And my literally, there were always directions for whatever activity it was going to be. Because I didn't want to forget a piece. I generally wrote sequential directions. So it was bullet pointed or had numbers. Things were bolded or color coded. I also had the time up there. It just was the place to go when you needed to know what to do. And I couldn't remember all that. And I didn't want to say it because... At least the younger kids asked over and over, wait, what do we do now? What's next? What if we finish early? And so I could just have all that up on the slide. And it was up there the entire time. And if they asked someone, they pointed to the slide. They asked me, I pointed to the slide. I mean, they never didn't know what to do. And it was very clear when someone was coming into the room to help. Okay, what are we working on? They didn't have to ask. They was like, okay, it's very clear where we are. And that was really helpful for everyone. It also makes sure you think through your direction so that there's no missing piece Or a kid says, Hey, what do I do when I'm done? And you're thinking, hmm, I didn't think through that. You should well and I love the comment, well, you shouldn't be done. This is more, this is enough time. You know, but it's always good to think through what if a kid is done? Where are they turning this in? Or do they need to get my attention? Or can they move on to something else? Again, these really push you to think on a more thorough level of this lesson plan. And you might think, oh my God, this is gonna take forever. But you're gonna realize You're a routine person, probably. You've got habits. And so I kind of set things up every day the same way. Kids always knew the directions were up there. Our routine became the same. And so everyone just kind of fell into a flow. It felt daunting at first, but I could reuse a lot of the same structures um, every single day. So it didn't feel like I had to keep thinking up new things, but I just had to keep repeating that same thorough process. All right, the last thing here is a CFU. is call to check for understanding. This is the game changer, at least for me and my management. I thought it was good before, but this is really where I started to shine. So I used to wait to see if students understood me. I'd either wait it to the end of my point or even after the end of the lesson or after the directions, but it was just way too late. So what I started doing was checking their understanding along the way. And I started catching misconceptions early. I was rightening students' path. We weren't losing too many kids. It just engages students. They're paying better attention because they know at any moment they're going to have to share or rephrase what you were discussing or help a peer out or restate directions. So I feel like I wasn't really losing anyone's attention span because they were ready and willing to engage with me knowing that a check for understanding could potentially come. But really, honestly, it came out of a need for me to make sure, do you guys know what I'm saying before I tell you too much and I have to go back and do this all over again? I don't have that kind of time, so I'd rather know as soon as we're derailing. But as I was mentioning with the peers, for whatever reason, I must talk a different language than my kids, but I would say something and then a kid would say, I don't get it. And I'd say, okay, John, go ahead and fill him in on on what I was explaining. And then here comes John to the rescue and explains it in kid terms or whatever. And then he's like, oh, that makes sense. And I'm like, I said that. (laughs) But whatever reason, kids speak the same language. They get each other. They're great translators for my adult speak. (laughs) And it's just fantastic. So the check for understanding has actually really helped students gain confidence. And they're helping each other. Always, always, always do a check for understanding before you transition because I'd say, okay, go, and then people would get up and they're walking around confused. They don't have their materials. They're like lost puppies and said, okay, come back. Let's try that again. And that's, again, why it's really important to have those directions on the board. And when you do your check for understanding, ask the kids, hey, why step three? Why are we doing that? Or what is step five? You know, they don't necessarily have to say them all because it's up there. But before kids ever move, you've got to make sure they know what are they doing. And you know your kids that you're probably going to want to ask to make sure that they know. Always ask a check for understanding after the I do portion. So when you're delivering your content, please do it throughout the delivery of content. But make sure that kids aren't moving on to practice without really getting a clear temperature of the room. And so you got to pull more than one, two, three kids. So Another thing with checks for understanding is write them into your lesson plans. Or for me, I wrote them up. So I always had discussion questions or directions written as a PowerPoint slide. And I would make them, they were timed. So when I clicked the button on my little device, then it would come up. That way they didn't see all the questions. But that was really helpful so I could ask four or five students parts of the question that would lead me up to, okay, are we on the same page versus having to ask the same question five different times, if that makes sense. They're all like pieces of a larger question. And so I think of a lesson as cake layers. So you would, you know, be frosting that first cake layer and as you're doing that, then you're asking them questions to ensure they're on the same page because what's going to come next is that next piece of cake that's going on top that needs more frosting, but you don't want to put that on until you've got everyone right where you want them, till they got that first row, that foundational part of the cake, before you get more complex. And then after that second frosting of that second layer, you're asking more checks for understanding to make sure kids are with you. And then that final layer, it's just to ensure that no one's falling off the train. And this is great when you're moving up Bloom's Taxonomy and you're asking harder and harder questions. You start losing kids quickly. And so instead of just rushing through them to say, oh, I asked these really great questions today, it's I can't move on until I've got more people. So it really forces you to think through your questioning and your support for your students. And there's a lot of technology out there. So you could literally post a question and it could go to their device and they can you know, put yes, no, or multiple choice or write it in and then bam, the data's right up on the board. And you're like, okay, look at this pie chart. I'm I'm at 70% of comprehension. This is either good enough or not good enough or whatever you want to do. But that has really helped a new teacher say, I'm ready to move on. I actually have the proof now that we can go ahead and do that. So that's my top five effective classroom management tips um, to refer to as the nuts and bolts. That was systems and routines, student teacher actions, timing, written directions, and a check for understanding. So tune your lesson plans up a notch by using this magnifying glass to look for those five things. And if something's missing, start planning right away. But remember, do it little by little and adjust as you go. The most important thing is you just take small action every day. So instead of overhauling and stressing yourself out and your kids feeling like their world has got turned upside down, just give one simple thing a try tomorrow. And reach out to me if you want more ideas or you hit a problem area, we can talk it out. Gretchen at always a all right, elite, elite, All right, Elite Educators, that is a wrap for this week's podcast on nuts and bolts of effective classroom management. Now go out and be great because you've just been empowered. Podcast is sponsored by the Educators Podcast Network, a podcast network that encourages you to think about your profession and succeed in the world of education. Whether you're a first-year educator or a seasoned veteran, there is a podcast for you. All of the shows are produced by educators who want to shape education through meaningful discussion and content. So head on over to edupodcast.com network.com for more details.